Our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 to 14. Welcome to Christ the King. We are resuming our study of the book of Hebrews this morning after only one week away. We haven't gotten very far yet, but... If you've been here, you know that we've covered a lot of ground in the two weeks that I've spent on verses 1 to 3. So as we begin this morning, let me first remind you of some things that we talked about now three weeks ago in order to begin to approach this passage this morning. Three weeks ago, we said that the pastoral purpose of this written sermon that we call Hebrews, is that its hearers, or readers, would have faith. That in response to what God has spoken in His Son, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I have faith. And three weeks ago, I defined that a little further and said that the response we're talking about in Hebrews is faith as a life of obedience to the end. That every word of Hebrews is a loving rhetorical struggle for the life of this church to which the pastor was writing. Remember Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36? You have need of endurance, he says to them. Why do you have need of endurance? Why do I have need of endurance? The rest of verse 36 of Hebrews 10 gave us the answer. So that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now, track with me, because I think this matters to our text this morning. The pastor writes his sermon, Hebrews, so that you and I have faith. Because faith is what is required if we're to receive what is promised. So that the next question maybe has to be, though lots of Hebrews will work on answering this, what is it that's been promised? What is it that we're hoping to receive? What are you living for, Christian? What's your end game? Why do what Hebrews will say you have to do? Run with endurance the race that is set before us, chapter 12, verse 1. Why? Why strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, as chapter 12, verse 14 says. You know why? Turn to Hebrews 12. I, if you would, turn, turn to the right to Hebrews 12. I'd like you to see this text first off this morning. Though this, I know, is the end of the sermon, Hebrews 12, I think. And then chapter 13 is a bit of an added, same author, but added element. I know chapter 12 seems like eons away from where we are this morning. It is eons away in the sense that there's a lot of material between chapters 1 and 12. But it's not so far away in the sense that what I think we begin to realize when we look at chapter 12 alongside chapter 1 is that our passage this morning 
in chapter one is the beginning of the end of the story. And we'll look, we'll look together at least at the basic content, which is a whole lot of content, even basic content. It's a whole lot in verses five to 14 of Hebrews chapter one in a minute. When we do that, I'm going to be arguing that Hebrews chapter one is the celebration of the final stage of the son's narrative. It's all about the son as Jesus being exalted to the father's right hand, inheriting the name son, taking up his throne in the heavenly world. <laughs> Come to chapter 12 here in a minute. So that immediately after the introduction that we've spent two weeks on, immediately after that very carefully constructed introduction, the argument of Hebrews now launches in chapter one with the entrance of the son into the heavenly realm. Why? Why start there? If you're the pastor writing this sermon. Here's my answer. The answer is because that's where you and I are heading to, brothers and sisters, if we heed the pastor's call to faith, if we endure. Now let me say that again because I've already alluded to it, but our passage this morning has this mountain of detail in it. And I, as much as you may feel like I'm just going to be trying to cover every, I'm really not trying to cover everything that's in those verses this morning. We'll get into what we can probably too much. But this is really the thing I want you to try to grasp above everything this morning. So I'm front loading it. Why start the main argument of Hebrews the way our pastor does? He quotes from all kinds of Old Testament texts in pretty complicated ways sometimes. He creates this extended vision of the son who's superior to the angels, who's exalted in the heavenly realm. Why do that? The answer is because that same heavenly realm is where you and I are heading to, brothers and sisters, if we heed the pastor's call to faith. Now, I'll just say briefly in this moment and then lots more later in Hebrews, when I say things like the heavenly realm, I'm not just talking about some ethereal heavenly existence detached from earthly physical reality for eternity or this sort of thing. I'm talking about what will encompass all of the world, all of the new heavens and the new earth in the future. It's big picture stuff, but more on that later. Now, you're in chapter 12. I asked you to turn there. Watch, watch this. Hebrews 12, go to verse 22, right? Where does the pastor at the end of the sermon say we are if we have faith? He closes his whole sermon with this proleptic scene. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And there's a whole lot of stuff in those verses and you may not yet see the various ways this is true, but the echoes that are there in that passage and around it in chapter 12, the echoes there of what we have this morning in chapter one, are significant. 
And then you see what the very next verse says in Hebrews 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. I mean, look at the pastor begins Hebrews with the end, right? We talked about this three weeks ago too. Chapter 1, verse 1. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. Then chapter 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. What's the first thing we get in Hebrews? It's a vision of the son, the firstborn, our text says, in the heavenly kingdom. What's the last thing we get in Hebrews? It's a vision of us as part of the assembly of the firstborn coming to the city of the living God. This is not detached. Look, at, here's one way to understand what Hebrews is about. The Son, as Jesus, enters into the heavenly realm where he now sits enthroned at the Father's right hand so that we can go there too. You see? Bingo. The only way that we can receive what is promised, the only way you and I and anyone who lives by faith can inherit salvation, the very last words of our text this morning, the only way that happens in the heavenly Jerusalem is if the Son has made it possible for us to follow him there. So that, like two poles at the end of the argument of this entire sermon, the pastor is ushering his hearers into the throne room of heaven. At the starting pole, our text this morning, the pastor celebrates what? The firstborn son's inheritance, his entrance into the heavenly realm. And at that ending pole, the end of the sermon, the pastor celebrates the inheritance of the firstborn sons and daughters. It's you and me. As we enter into the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Which then means that the whole of the interior of the sermon operates between those two poles, right? I'm big on this now, having thought about this for a long time. What's Hebrews about? Well, one way to look at it is to say that Hebrews shows us how it's possible that you and I can end up where the Son of God is. How can that be? How can God dwell with us? What happened to make that possible? What is required of us as we live with that destination in view now? How is it that we can inherit the promise? That's where we're moving in Hebrews. In just the next few weeks, we're moving there. And over many months, we're moving there as well. And I know that this morning, just having said all that, there's about a thousand questions that come to your, your mind, which are doubt, doubtlessly all very good questions. But I'll just say at this juncture that I'd ask you to try to let Hebrews begin to answer those for you as we continue week by week together to understand this. We're going to cover a huge amount in this book. We're still in the introductory sections of it. I'll do my best to unpack it, as I always do. 
This morning, though there's a lot of detail coming, the thing I want you to recognize the most is this is where Hebrews starts us. It is with this big picture. We begin with the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. It is the pastor declaring reality to you. From there then, in the next few weeks even, we're going to move into topics that have to do with the goal of creation, the purpose of humanity, the salvific plan of God as that has been realized in the Son as Jesus. I mean, I said this last week, this is the cosmic history of Hebrews, which I think means it's going to take some time for us to just become oriented to that. I do not expect that the conceptual world of Hebrews is one that will be instantly comfortable for you to swim in. I'm finding it plenty challenging to enter into it in my own study as I prepare these sermons. So it well may be a few weeks, maybe more than a few weeks, before you come here and you listen and you feel like, yeah, I'm beginning to get what Hebrews is on about. I mean, maybe you're more, you're more capable than I'm giving you any credit for. I don't mean to insult you. I just mean... It's okay if you feel like that. I feel like that. It takes me a long time to get my head into the space that Hebrews operates in. That's fine. But let me say this. If we want to live faithfully, I'm convinced, reading this book, if we want to see victory over sin in our lives, if we want to know what it is that we're meant to be and to do in this world, we have to embrace this big picture. We have to work hard to understand it. And remember, the pastor sends this written sermon to a small house church in the first century. You can, you can do this. He sends it to people who are facing real life, everyday pressures, people with issues and questions and struggles. And it's noteworthy to me as a pastor that the pastoral priority of Hebrews at the outset is to remind his readers just where they are from the perspective of heaven. We don't think that way, at least not usually. Now, in case you missed it, where we are is in these last days, according to chapter 1, verse 2, you can flip away from chapter 12 back to chapter 1 and follow with me there now. The most important thing we said to know in these last days is that God has spoken by his Son. This is the Son who, verse 3 says, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, who, backing up, was appointed the heir of all things. Remember two weeks ago, I thought before the creation of the world, I suggested he was appointed the heir of all things. Who then is himself the agent of creation, who carries the universe forward to its ultimate destination, who, having made purification for sins, then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Which is where we now pick things up. If you have your Bibles there in Hebrews 1, we're beginning in verse 4. You see right away that verse 4 isn't a new sentence. That's because you can't leave the context that just was there in verse 3. The sun sat down. This is the enthronement of the sun as he shares that throne with his father. Verse 4, as I read it here, serves now as the thesis that drives the entirety of verses 5 to 14, the end of the chapter. Actually, verse 4 is what sets up everything to the end of chapter 2. This theme on the angels doesn't go away. Because what we have in verse 4 is the beginning of the description of what's true of the Son. 
when the sun sat down at God's right hand. In other words, why is it that the Son was granted to sit at the right hand of the Father? Well, the answer is, according to this verse, because he had become, it says, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, there's a few things you could talk about from that verse, but there are... I think two primary directions, two lines of thought that our author now pursues from that statement. The first is where we are today, the whole rest of the time, basically. The pastor first then goes on to demonstrate the superiority of the son to the angels, which is what verses 5 to 14 of chapter 1 do as they present the son seated in the heavenly realm using this series of Old Testament texts. That'll be the focus of what is going to be left of our time this morning. That's today. But then there's a second line of thought that's maybe trickier. I'll mention it now. And that is this. How do you talk about or explain this idea of the Son becoming greater than the angels? How does the pastor say that the one who is the agent of creation and the radiance of the glory of God becomes greater than the angels? Isn't he already greater? Okay, now, the full answer to that line of thought and what, what that's talking about and how it is that the son can inherit the name son. Okay, these are puzzling concepts. That's going to take us into chapter two over the next few weeks. So just hold on to that. Ponder it in your heart, maybe, for the coming days. For the rest of our time today, the focus will be on the fact of the superiority of the Son to the angels. The pastor moves into a series of seven Old Testament quotations. The entire way through, the purpose is these, the mention of angels. Angels are the foil which is used to set in relief for us who the Son is. Okay, which means I guess before we now race through these seven quotations, we, we have to say at least something about why it is the pastor would introduce the subject of angels here, right? And you actually can read, if you want to, lots of theories about how maybe the readers of this sermon had some misconceptions about angels, or maybe they were inappropriately worshiping angels, or maybe they thought Jesus was an angel, or something like that. I mean, we know that some of those things were issues that Paul was dealing with in Colossians, for example. I don't think anything in Hebrews suggests that that's the reason. I don't think the point here is that the pastor is trying to correct a mistaken understanding of angels. I just don't see that. Instead, I think the pastor uses angels in contrast to the Son, because the pastor knows that the most effective way to talk about the glory of the Son's exalted state in the heavenly realm is to bring in the angels by way of contrast. Well, okay, but the question is why? Why is using angels in contrast to the Son the most effective strategy for the author of Hebrews here? Okay, I have two answers to that question. First is just because angels are amazing. Right? I mean, who else are you going to compare the sun to? Angels. 
are mentioned over 100 times in the Old Testament, more than 160 times in the New Testament, they form the heavenly host. They exist in vast numbers. They're usually invisible to us, but sometimes the human eye can be opened to behold them, like with Balaam in Numbers 22, like with Elisha in 2 Kings 6, when the armies of the angels are encamped all around them. Sometimes angels do appear and they have a human-like appearance. They shine brightly at the empty tomb at the end of the gospel accounts, for example. Sometimes they're awesome winged creatures like seraphim and cherubim and angels we know can wield immense power to bring about God's will, like when they cause earthquakes and deliver captives in the book of Acts. Angels in heaven are continuously worshiping they're sometimes able to reveal things that will happen in the future like they do to the Apostle John writing the book of Revelation. They rejoice at the conversion of sinners. They will be God's agents in the final earthly judgments and they will judge Satan himself. So I don't know, maybe it's just enough to recognize that comparison with the angels is the most effective way to talk about the supremacy of the sun simply because the angels are awesome beings. But most scholars actually say that there is one other connection that is probably in play here. And it makes sense when you come, as we will next week, to chapter 2. If you want to just glance ahead to chapter 2, verse 2, where the pastor says there, he has the phrase, he writes about the message declared by angels there in verse 2. That proves to be reliable. And I'm not, I won't explain the context in all of that now, other than to say that there the pastor is referencing the Mosaic Law. Because angels were understood to be connected to the giving of the law in Jewish thought. You may even remember this brief point from Galatians. Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 19 that the law was put in place through angels. Acts chapter 7, verse 53, Stephen, near the end of Stephen's speech, speaks of the law as delivered by angels, right? We see this in the New Testament. You probably know that later on in Hebrews, we'll be wrestling with the way that the pastor is contrasting the old covenant and its law, which is mediated by angels, with the new covenant, which of course is mediated by Jesus. So that it might be that even here now, the contrast that he brings in with angels is introduced in chapter 1 in order to prepare us for that contrast between the old and the new covenants that will come later. That makes some sense. In any event, the point is that the pastor uses angels now to turn our attention to the Son, who's now enthroned in heaven. So that with the very limited time that in which I have to do this, I want to walk through what he has to say in verses 5 to 14. There's a structure here to these seven Old Testament citations. This is going to feel a bit like just data barraging, but I'm trying. I'm trying to keep the unit together and, and give you the pieces that I think are most important. There are three pairs in these citations, as in, two, four, six, and then uh, the seventh final climactic reference from the Old Testament is at the end. That's the structure. The three pairs there are linked. 
either by an obvious word connection between each of the elements of the pair or by a synonym in one case that links them conceptually. I'll show you that. That's the structure. So what I want to do is walk through. I'm just going to make some select comments, some of them somewhat mysterious, but the, my goal is to keep your focus, to keep our focus where I'm strongly suggesting it's supposed to be, which is on Jesus's enthronement in the heavenly realm, the heavenly world. So here's the first pair of Old Testament references that comes right away in verse 5. The focus in verse 5 has to do with the son's relationship to the father. Let's read verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say? Now that's rhetorical. The pastor knows that his hearers know God never said anything like this to any one of the angels. That's the point. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So, Okay, you obviously see the son language that's repeated there. That's the link for that pair. Those two Old Testament references, if you're note takers, are Psalm 2, verse 7, and this one should warm your heart, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Oh, 2 Samuel. The point the pastor's making here is straightforward, sort of. The pastor's arguing that these Old Testament scriptures designate Jesus as God's son, a title not given to angels. Now, okay, sometimes angels as a group are referred to in the Old Testament as sons of God in the plural, but the point here is there's no one angel who's ever identified as the son of God. That's the point. And I say that this is sort of straightforward because, of course, if you're reading this really carefully, which I hope you will do and do again and again this week, what the pastor's doing here is claiming that in these Old Testament scriptures that he's quoting, God was speaking to Jesus. Even though originally both of those texts were directed to the Davidic kings, Right? Get it? Maybe not. <laughs> Verse 5 makes clear that this is God saying this. You see it? For to which of the angels did God ever say? He's not saying it to the angels, but by implication, he is saying it to the Son. In other words, the attribution Son in both Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 here ultimately are addressing Jesus. Ooh. Which means that we should say maybe something about how our pastor is understanding the Old Testament, right? Well, we'll be saying a lot about that as we go along, but I won't say much right now. A little bit I will, but time is slipping away. Josiah actually already laid out, if you were here last week to hear his sermon from Proverbs 8, he already began to lay out some of the basics of this. The basic idea is this. In the pastor's understanding, and I think in the New Testaments generally, God is the ultimate author of Scripture. That's the key. You see, he's quoting God here. God says, here's a quote from the Psalms. God says, here's a quote from 2 Samuel. The pastor then takes that to mean that when God uttered the Old Testament Scriptures, God 
in his divine knowledge, intended the Son to be their subject matter, ultimately. That's what's made explicit in these last days, you see. It's not that the scriptures are merely applied to the Son, as if it's a stretch to do that, to say they're actually talking about Jesus. No, the point is that the Son actually is the meaning of the scriptures, somehow within the divine perspective, if you will. We're going to talk a lot more about how this works its way out over and over again in Hebrews. But my point is, it's not different than what Jesus himself declared when Jesus said in Luke 24, verse 44, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now we'll have to leave it at that for now. A lot more to come. You may know something about Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9, it talks about the Davidic king inheriting the nations and ruling the entire world. In verse 7 of the psalm, which is the one quoted here, it refers to the installation of the Davidic king. Only now the pastor explains that that verse ultimately speaks of Jesus as the messianic king, assuming his reign now as he sits at the right hand of the Father. That's what this is talking about. The today in the author of Hebrews' mind, the today of Psalm 2-7, you see it? Today I have begotten you. When is today in how the author of Hebrews is using this psalm? The ultimate, God's ultimate intention in this psalm? Well, it's the day of Christ's exaltation and enthronement as the Son. That's when it is which is, of course, subsequent and linked to his resurrection. Because you may know that his exaltation, his, his, his enthronement, is directly linked to his resurrection. And in, in fact, explicitly in this verse, Psalm 2, verse 7, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. That's an allusion to Psalm 2. Then again, Acts 13, verses 32 and 33. Paul makes it very explicit. Psalm 2, verse 7 is fulfilled in the resurrection. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the Father, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So that... We're meant to link, I think always, the resurrection directly with the ascension and the glorification of the Son as essentially one movement in the narrative of the Son. I know that for 40 days he taught them about the kingdom before he ascended, but talking theologically. He's ascended, he's resurrected to glory, and that is the, the gateway to his ascension and glorification in heaven. That may be why Hebrews hardly mentions the resurrection one time, right? The whole book, one time. Why? Because it's assumed everywhere, as it is here. All right. Now, with your permission, I'm just going to skip 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, because if you've been with us at Christ the King, you've heard all about it. This is the quotation from the Davidic covenant. We dealt with that extensively. We'll just move along now. The first pair of passages there, Jesus is superior to the angels because he is the enthroned Davidic king. Yes, that means he is God's unique son. As the son, he rules over all. He is given the name son. Second pair of references then in verses 6 and 7. These focus on these two citations 
to do with the role and the ministry of angels now. Look at verse 6. And again, the pastor writes, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a fire of flame. Flame of fire, excuse me. Now there, obviously, you see the link. It is the repetition of the angel terminology. That's why that's a pair there. The two texts that are in view, if you want to jot it down, though, this is me. This is what I think. The, the two texts I think are in view are Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, the first one, and then Psalm 104, verse 4. Both of those are actually kind of complicated <laughs> in ways that I'm not going to get into here, but in terms of what he's quoting exactly. But the verse from Deuteronomy shows that the angels are to worship the Son, according to the pastor of Hebrews. And Psalm 104, verse 4, make clear the angels serve in the created realm. Indeed, they are part of creation, I would argue, I think is the point. Now, in both cases, the Son is clearly superior to the angels. Let me just say a bit about both of these texts. This is where it starts to get really thick. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43 is from the final lines of the Song of Moses. The glorious song at the end of Deuteronomy that in its context in the Old Testament, of course, is referring to Yahweh. Right? The one who is the final judge, in fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, beginning in verse 39. Just listen to some of it. Song of Moses, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. That's whom the angels are supposed to worship. But now, it's the sun. Well, okay, the sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The sun shares the same identity as the father. The pastor writing Hebrews sees no problem saying Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 43 means the angels must worship him. Whew. Now, lots of attention, believe it or not, I read whole articles about this this week, lots of attention has been given to the way that the pastor introduces the quote in verse 6 of our text. Just the introduction of the quote. You see, it's a little strange. He says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, the angels must worship him. Well, first of all, note that again, God is the one speaking, according to the pastor. That literally, as the pastor puts it, God is the one saying, let all God's angels worship him, meaning his son. Only a, a quite a difficult question is when? When is the when here, right? When this command from God is given in this scene as the pastor is painting it, what's the temporal reference there? When he brings the firstborn into the world. Well, there's actually been several interpretations for that over time. My own read is probably not the one that's immediately the most intuitive. I think that once again here, the pastor is referring intentionally to the time of the son's exaltation. 
when the Son is enthroned. In other words, it's the same time as we were in in verse 5 when he quotes Psalm 2 and says, Today I have begotten you. The same day, the same when. In parallel with that understanding, the world, the meaning of the world there in verse 6 is also terrifically challenging, but I think that's a reference to the heavenly world or realm, which again is not me trying to separate it from earth in some bizarre way, but just to say it's the bigger picture world, if you will. When he brings the firstborn to his heavenly enthronement, to his heavenly reign in the world. In fact, look ahead to chapter 2, verse 5. This is the same Greek word. It's used in verse 5 of chapter 2. It's crucial. It's not the standard word for world in the Greek. It's not cosmos. In verse 5 of chapter 2, the, author, the pastor says, uh, the world to come. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Oh, that's the world we're talking about. Right. All right. Now, in the event that that wasn't challenging enough in verse 6, the son is also called the firstborn, right? I mean, man. That could have a couple different nuances. I think the best way to understand that language is to link it with the same word that's used of the Davidic king in Psalm 89, verse 27, which says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, right? Because this is what I'm seeing. This is the designation of the Son's sovereignty and rule. The angels worship the Son as their sovereign, exalted ruler. Okay, now what is the nature of these angels exactly? That's the second one here, Psalm 104, verse 4, verse 7, here in our text. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Some people think that stresses that angels, angels are ephemeral, that like wind or like a flame of fire, they may flare up or they may blow, but then they can be gone, uh, you know, in the next moment. I don't think that's quite the point. I think the point instead, if you go back to Psalm 104, is more about the identity of the angels as being servants. They serve the exalted one. Perhaps the sense is that the angels, in fact, are God's ministers who can often serve him in the natural order. That would not be a stretch in my understanding. That in other words, God uses angels as his agents. We're going to see it explicitly at the end of our chapter. He uses angels as his agents in sending wind and fire, other natural phenomenon as well. Regardless how you interpret it, the emphasis, I think, is clear. Angels aren't worshipped as the sun is. They didn't create the world. They're part of the created universe. Okay. Third pair of references coming in verses 8 to 12. We'll only be able to comment on the theme here due to time. The focus has to do in verses 8 all the way to 12, which is just two more references. Uh, the, the focus is on the sun's kingly eternal rule. And I mean eternal, from creation to new creation. Let's read verses 8 and following. But, so now he's contrasting it to what he just said about the angels. Of the Son, he says, still God speaking, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter 
scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's God saying that to the Son, according to the author of Hebrews. And then God's still speaking. You, Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. Now, that's the last pair. The, uh, the repeated element isn't an exact word, you see, but it is to do with the eternal language. Forever and ever in verse 8 matches up with your years will have no end in verse 12. That's the conceptual link there. Those two passages, in case you're really trying to get all this down, are Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, and then Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. I don't know what to say about those. Psalm 45, ah, you see the, the emphasis on righteousness and justice, don't you? Reminds you of David, what David should be, <laughs> what the Davidic king should be. The perfect justice and righteousness that we know are the foundation of the Lord's throne, according to the psalm, they are the foundation of the Messiah's rule as well. So that when in verse 9 the pastor says, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, quoting the psalm. Well, I think that's likely referring to the Son as the incarnate Jesus Christ. That it was Jesus' obedience, his righteousness, that included being tested and tried, but being without sin, as we'll see comes up over and over again in Hebrews, that this results in his exaltation, which is celebrated again here at the end of verse 9, as he's anointed with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. That's you and me. Those are the companions. The sons and daughters of God that we're going to spend a lot of time talking about in chapter 2. I think it's us. It's the offspring of Abraham. Because already our pastor can't help but, but pointing out that we are seeing how we are meant to share in this heavenly calling. That's his language in chapter 3. Our joy will be great. His joy is even greater. And then Psalm 102, the last chunk of this, the pastor obviously now is returning to the Son through this psalm as the one through whom the world was created. We Think of Josiah's sermon last week from Proverbs 8, uh, two weeks ago when we were in the introduction. Then he moves on to make the point that the Son will be the one who recreates all things. So that verse 12 says, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. The Son is indeed the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, from verse 3. Only he who made all things, can save and remake all things. And he does. This is the new creation as I read it. The new heaven and the new earth. Or, if you want, go back to where we started the sermon in Hebrews chapter 12, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The hope, this is the hope of the people of God from the beginning. You see, this is the promise Abraham was looking for. We'll get there. 
So all that remains is for our pastor then to return to the core theme of the whole section, right? The exaltation of the sun. This is the climactic thing. Verse 13, he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, which will come up again and again in, in the course of Hebrews. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? None of the angels. This is what the pastor wants you to live in, see, understand, believe, picture. He returns to where he started in verse 3, right? Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Only now we begin to see more of the way forward into Hebrews at the very end of our passage because if this is where Jesus is and this is where the pastor begins us in Hebrew, what's happening now? While he's waiting, while he's seated. I love verse 14. I don't think I ever saw this verse before this week. Because I think then, gloriously, the pastor tells us that this son, who is superior to the angels, is sending his angels for our sake. Look at that. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The angel service we learn at the end of this remarkable chapter is to the Son for us that we would inherit salvation. Well, Lots could be said about what that might entail, but let me close with the words of Hebrews chapter 12 now and just putting this together, Hebrews 12 verses 1 to 3. Therefore, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I think part of that is sending the angels to help us who for the joy that was set before him, we've just been reading all about that joy, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.